Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, we're going to be discussing the climate crisis, but from a very positive perspective, how we can build our own resilience and momentum for healing and action in this challenging time. I'm delighted to welcome Laura Schmidt, who is the co-author of the book we're going to be discussing today, How to Live in a Chaotic Climate, 10 Steps to Reconnect with Ourselves, our communities, and our planet. Laura Schmidt is the founder, along with Amy Lewis-Rowe, of Good Grief Network, one of the first peer-to-peer support groups for eco-anxiety and climate grief. The Good Grief Network has grown quickly in the United States and has branched out internationally with trained facilitators in over 15 countries. GGN, or the Good Grief Network, has been covered in Time, NPR, USA Today, CNN, NBC News, and the LA Times. Laura and Amy are the co-hosts of the podcast, Why? Laura is trained in nonviolent civil disobedience and is a Climate Reality Leadership Corps member and mentor. You can find out more about Laura and Amy's work at their website, goodgriefnetwork.org. You can also follow them on Instagram and LinkedIn at Good Grief Network and at How to Live in a Chaotic Climate. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Laura Schmidt. I'm delighted you could join me today. Thank you so much. I'm excited and honored to be here. Before we begin our dialogue about reconnecting with our planet, each other, and ourselves in this time of climate crisis, Let's begin, as we mean to go on, let's begin with a moment of mindfulness, a yoga moment. Om. So let's begin by bringing ourselves fully into the present moment, letting go of anything that happened earlier today or any concerns with what might happen later on. Just being right here and right now. And turning our attention to our body and space, just feeling our body, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking or driving, just feeling our body in space. And in particular, feeling the surfaces that are supporting our weight. And then turning our attention to the breath and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, noticing the temperature of the air, the coolness as it passes through the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air temperature has now changed. Now it's warmer. Just resting right here, right now, staying with our breath. Here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, the spiritual director and founder of this program. This is from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. 
However formidable an obstacle may appear, from the spiritual perspective, the operant word is appear. At the heart of our ability to get beyond obstacles is our understanding that divine resources are always available to meet real needs. Cultivate a grateful heart and bring forth what is needed in the present moment from the wealth of divine inspiration within you. Cultivate a grateful heart and bring forth what is needed in the present moment from the wealth of divine inspiration within you. Once again, welcome to the Yoga Hour, Laura Schmidt. I'm really delighted that you could join me today to discuss your new book, How to Live in a Chaotic Climate. You and your wife, as I mentioned, Amy Lewis Rowe, are the founders of the Good Grief Network. So would you, let's start there. Would you tell me more about your organization, its goals, and its mission? We address collective grief and eco-distress and uh, the impacts on us as individuals as we're living through tremendous collective dysfunction and ongoing disruptions. Um, We also aim to expand and reframe meaningful actions so that we can take back our agency when so many of us feel like we don't have agency, the problems are too big and we're too little, you know, all these stories we tell ourselves. So we do this by creating spaces where people can show up um, to authentically connect, to build trust, to question our questions, question our perceptions, uh, and then to heal and move towards more joy and meaning and uh, engaging in action that that promotes that joy and meaning. I think that this uh, work actually started out uh, as part of what you worked on for your master's. Is that is that right? Can you, you say right. more about that? Did you um, did you um, actually ha- have in mind these kind of you know groups that you're promoting, or um, was that something that's kind of arisen you know more spontaneously as you've gone along? Definitely spontaneously. <laughs> uh, I studied biology, environmental studies, and then environmental humanities in my master's. And so that means that I was like really in the thick of understanding the climate crisis and the surrounding crises that I believe are all interrelated. And we can talk about that in a moment. Um, And I dove headfirst into activism. Like if I know about these problems, it's my responsibility to be a change maker and to start changing them. And then I realized that what I actually was doing was keeping my inner world, which was, um, I'm a trauma survivor. I had a lot of anxiety and depression. I was keeping that world separate from my change making world and my activism. And if you keep them, if that I learned, if I kept them separate long enough, that that eventually leads to burnout and eventually leads to feelings of emptiness and even more depression and anxiety. And so I realized I want to be a change maker but I have to learn how to sustain myself. I have to learn how to heal from this trauma and this depression and this anxiety so that I can continue to be a force for good, a force for change in a time of of great disruption. And so the steps really started as an investigation of how to sustain myself, how to heal my own isolation, how to do my own trauma healing and how to stay engaged and awake and aware. And 
after my wife moved in with me, we were having a series of conversations and realized that if I'm feeling this amount of overwhelm, there are probably others feeling it as well. And I had already created kind of a mat for us. And so then we just had to bring it to life and we had to invite others to sit with us. And we had imagined that it would stay small and local and just kind of be a place where we could go and connect and very quickly after we ran our first two sessions, the messaging we received was that this is important, it's healing, and it needs to grow and other people need access to it. And so we have continued to try to bring it to scale and have experimented with a few different modalities. But the idea is that in these times of great disconnection, we need each other. Mm-hmm. And we need to learn how to come back into relationship with one another and and sitting together and bearing witness to each other's stories is one of the best ways that I've found to start and initiate that work. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I really appreciated. And, and one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show is the focus on connectedness, you know, and, and reconnecting. Um, and that's even in the subtitle of your book, 10 Steps to Reconnect with Ourselves, Our Communities and Our Planet. Um, this emphasis on on both individual and then collective healing, I think, is su- is such an important one, and really helps us with that feeling that you've already kind of referred to that overwhelm feeling of like the problems are so big. How can what action can I take that's going to make a meaningful uh, impact? Um, you know, in all of the stuff that's going on in the world. And I should mention that the steps that you outline in the book are really beyond just the climate crisis. I think that's what you were, you know, referring to that really um, it's an approach that would benefit a number of different um, issues, you know, seemingly intractable issues that are coming up and are becoming more and more obvious as we go forward in time. Yeah. So in your approach, um, which I, I, I really appreciate, I think one of the first steps is really being honest and realistic, you know, about about where we are but instead of becoming despondent and fearful you say you write when we embrace the unknown and work cooperatively we plant seeds that may grow into new ways of being for future generations which is just it's really it's really lovely way to think about you know what we're doing again because of the scale of the issues that we're facing it's hard to imagine that you know like you said an individual can make a difference, but we, but planting seeds is a wonderful image, right? A wonderful metaphor for what we're trying to do because we can certainly plant seeds and we all know that seeds can grow into something that's, that's huge. You quote Greta Thunberg in the book, you know, wonderful, amazing young uh, climate uh, activist. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. And I think we are all becoming increasingly aware of that. Your approach, though, of of banding together and and reconnecting with ourselves and community and this emphasis on resiliency, I think, is very hopeful. We can adapt in a positive way to all these changes in our lives. So would you say more about that kind of underlying approach? The seed metaphor is really helpful for me as I'm a novice gardener and realizing that what we do to tend seeds is really a lot about the conditions that we're setting. And I think in a time of climate disruption and social divide, when things feel so unmanageable and unpredictable and like we don't know what tomorrow's going to look like, that our goal, our aim is to be setting those conditions for something beautiful to emerge, even if we can't see it right now. 
it makes the most sense for us as individuals and collectives to be nourishing those seeds by cultivating those conditions, which are based on connection and love and reciprocity and mutuality. And Greta Thunberg's quote, change is coming, whether you like it or not, is the invitation into, even if we as the dominant culture, and then as a world do everything right to make this transition, to get off fossil fuels, uh, to stop perpetrating ecocide and to equal out the oppression and extraction that has impacted so much of us up to this point, even if we do all those things right and make that transition, the world inevitably will change. Mm -hmm. And even if we cannot do those things and we continue to use fossil fuels and we don't organize for change and we don't change our political systems, everything's going to change. Mm -hmm. And so the question that we're sitting with and that I've been sitting with with a number of years is what is our relationship to change and how do we become more able to be with the changes, to flow with the changes? And it is important, again, to, to be working toward the cultivation of those seeds as things change. We can hold that vision, even if it doesn't feel like that vision is reasonable or accessible, because if we're not holding the vision, it certainly will never come to fruition. And so those are the questions that I'm trying to engage and that I'm trying to live with and embody every day. So you had mentioned that you had initially thought the work was just going to be local and now it's, you know, hopefully, you know, growing and having an impact. And, you know, you mentioned an enormous number of countries that the, that you already have people on the ground, you know, that are that are working along these lines. Um, I imagine that that was a lot of the motivation that came in writing and putting it in a book form. Did you want to say more about that? Amy and I really like to remind people that we're not alone. And mm -hmm. I think it stems from a lot of our own feelings of isolation and feeling alone. And so I think the one of the primary purposes of the book is to remind people that if they're having these feelings, if they're feeling constantly like their heart is breaking and they want to stay engaged and they want to stay awake and aware that they're not alone and there's other people feeling it as well. Mm -hmm. And so the, the connectivity point is, is critical for us. And we want to normalize that being a thinking, feeling person in these times is actually really hard. Like to stay awake and aware requires work and requires courage. And then if you have mental health issues, if you have trauma, if you're highly sensitive, that work is even harder for us. And yet it's manageable. It's doable. We can engage in these times with open hearts. We can engage in these times staying connected. And even through the climate crisis, um, joy and meaning are available to us. But we first have to learn how to engage them. We have to learn how to cultivate them, which, again, are these conditions for, for seed planting. Mm -hmm. So interesting uh, that you that you talk about cultivating conditions. Um, my teacher, uh, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, really talks about the importance of that in, for example, our meditation practice, which I know we'll get to, you know, we'll get to later, cultivating conditions. And it's great to see it, you know, applied in this setting as well. You write in the book, reconnecting is arguably the most important thing that you can do for our planet. Just give a moment for that to sink in. Reconnecting is arguably the most important thing that you can do for our planet. Such an interesting statement. What do you mean by that? I'm a firm believer that so many of the crises that we're experiencing right now are rooted in deep disconnection. And what we're capable of doing when we don't feel connected to 
the planet or to those we perceive as other or to ourselves, um, the amount of destruction greatly goes up when we're feeling those feelings of disconnection. To heal, to come back into right relationship with the planet and with each other and, of course, ourselves, we actually have have to wake up to the interconnectivity that exists that we sort of have forgotten. And many cultures have known this for thousands of years. It's just that our dominant culture has chosen to isolate, divide, alienate, and uh, perpetuate those types of sentiments over connectivity. And so as we wake up, as we reconnect, we fall in love again with life. We access that meaning and that joy that so many of us yearn for. And then in addition to that, we become less willing, less able to do harm because we're cognizant of how we're moving through the world. We're cognizant of the the harm we're doing. And, and so as we connect more, we're naturally going to want to do less harm and be in that mutuality, that reciprocity, that connectedness together. <clears throat> From a yoga perspective, um, this idea of oneness is really central. Now, most people, when they think about yoga, are thinking about just the postures that you might see on the yoga magazine that's in the line at the checkout counter. But really, yoga philosophy is much broader than that. And that's one of the purposes of the show is to expand people's understanding of yoga, yoga as a philosophy, as a very, you know, overarching philosophy, and that has everything to do with oneness and connection and recognizing that, you know, there is a oneness and this idea, for example, of the golden rule, when we harm someone else, we're really harming ourselves in the broadest possible way. So that's one of the reasons that um, I think it's a your book is so uh, in line with yoga philosophy is really is about, you know, connection and recognizing that oneness and and that um, that oneness also with all living things. Um, I think you uh, talk in the book, I uh, really like the phrase a more than human uh more than human uh earth is it more than human earth is more than human you know is that we are here with many many you know beings and um you know our our the way that we view that and the oneness that we can feel which is actually interesting when you think about it because i think everyone has had experiences of that oneness and especially if we're in nature right when we have that expansion of our consciousness and we feel connected to everything and to something greater than ourselves. So I think you're pointing to something that's very, you know, that, that, that most people have had an experience with. Yeah. It's a profound invitation when we can get still enough and go outside and, and connect in that way. I think there's a lot of wonder and beauty and awe that re reminds us we're a small part of a ever unfolding story um, and the, the term is the more than human world. Uh, and that comes from David Abram. Um, but it fits so well. I actually was creating the word or not creating the word, but using the word nature quite often. And it was actually our executive director, Sarah JS, that was like, I think you mean the more than human world. It's it's more intimate. It's more connective. It's more uh, understanding of, of what's happening um, and that things exist above and beyond just humanity. So we've tried to incorporate that um, just to switch the way that we're thinking, like we are of nature, we are a part of it. And there's a more than human world. There's things happening that that we're not even engaged in or involved in. And it's beautiful and miraculous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
You quote the psychotherapist and writer Francis Weller as saying that we are in a time of the, quote, long dark, unquote, the long dark. This was really interesting to me. I had not been aware of this before, and I thought it was um, an important um, point, an important um, metaphor, a way of thinking about where we are right now. So would you say more about that, about the long dark and why it's useful for us to understand this perspective and that it's not, when you refer to the long dark, it's not all dark. <laughs> it's not negative. Um, that it, it has it has a function and that things happen in the dark that that perhaps can't happen in the light. So go ahead and, and say more about that. Francis Weller, I think, is um, a genius. I think he's really profound with the way that he writes and the way that he talks. And uh, he calls himself a soul activist and he does a tremendous amount of grief work. And he coined the term the long dark to mean a space or a series of moments um, where under the veil of darkness, a rearrangement or reorganization or culture building can happen. And he says that he doesn't use the term negatively at all, which is what you said, but he uses it alchemically. Like there are only things that can happen in the dark. And the dominant culture particularly is in a time of decay. We are in a time of collapse, a time of sheddings, a time of endings, and these are necessary. And the idea is that we focus so long or, or, or we hold so much fear and anguish and grief about endings that we forget that endings also are beginnings and that sometimes we need to slough off the things that aren't working for us. And we know so many things aren't working for us. And so the long dark is an invitation into endings and the breakdowns into this period of Francis Weller says gestation and, and stillness and deep listening so that we can ripen ourselves and we can deepen and that we can have the dreamers and the activists come forward. Uh, the, that's Francis Weller's invitation for this time is for us to become really alive in, the, in that period of darkness in that time of darkness. And it's important to know that we don't actually know how long the long dark will last. And we have to be willing to flow with it, to be with it, to to do our inner work so we can sustain ourselves and sustain our open hearts in this time. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really important um, idea. And this idea that the long dark is not necessarily negative, that yes, things are dying, but other things are being born and, and certain things can only happen. It also reminds me of sort of a, you know, this idea when we when something dies, um, including things in our personal life, like a relationship or, you know, a person, you know, there's a period of where we don't know what's up, we don't know, you know, literally, you know, what's up or down. And then it stabilizes after a period of time, and we can imagine a new life, but that new life is not visible, it's not really um, apparent to us at the moment of 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 whatever that ended just ended it takes this period of time where we are in the dark that's why i think it's a good metaphor you know but then something new can arise you know from that point why don't why don't you take a minute and go over the the 10 steps because we aren't going to have a chance to talk about everything but i wanted people to just kind of have a chance of you know sort of hearing the scope of the things that your, you know, your book talks about, we're going to then pick out a couple that we'll focus in on in more depth. Um, is that okay? Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we work one step a week and they're presented linearly, but life is not true to linearity. And so I will read them linearly, we practice them linearly, but also we cycle through them and sometimes one step is more poignant than the other for a particular time and maybe we need to work more on one than than others. And so with that being said, the steps are step 1 is accept the severity of the predicament. Two is to be with uncertainty. Three, honor my mortality and the mortality of all. Four, do inner work. Five, develop awareness of brain patterns and perception or biases and perception, how our brains trick us. My wife calls this the permission to be wrong step. It's a reminder that we're allowed to be wrong Step six is practice gratitude, witness beauty, and create connections. Step seven is take breaks and rest. Eight, grieve the harm I have caused. We need a place where we can touch our our guilt and our shame about being harm doers in these times. If you're a human being, you've caused harm, but also if you live in the dominant culture, just by living here, we cause harm. You know, we have to drive cars. We have, many of us eat meat. It's just, it, it often can build up in our somas and make us really overwhelmed. So we need a place where we can talk about it and where we can start to identify harm reduction strategies. Nine is show up. And this means to show up for ourselves, but also for our communities and what that might look like for each of us. And 10, reinvest in meaningful efforts. And this is an invitation that after all this work we've done, after we've processed some of our grief and our fears or our rage or whatever it is that we've been inundated by, we can then recapture all of that energy and reinvest it into things that bring us closer to healing and connection and growth. And, and by proxy, we open to meaning and joy. I think that's where our meaning and joy is available. So that's the 10 step program right there. That's so great. Thank you for giving that overview. Because as I said, it's really impossible to talk about 10 things in any depth. So we'll just pick a couple. But I, I think it's great for people to listeners to hear just the whole the whole thing and, and the richness that you present in the book. As a reminder to our listeners today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Laura Schmidt. Laura is the co founder with her wife, Amy Lewis Rowe of the Good Grief Network. They co-authored the book we are discussing today, How to Live in a Chaotic Climate, 10 Steps to Reconnect with Ourselves, Our Communities, and Our Planet. You can find out more about the work of the Good Grief Network at their website, goodgriefnetwork.com. We will publish the link on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list and receive our monthly newsletter, which includes highlights of prior episodes of the Yoga Hour and also describes upcoming guests. Getting back to the book, Laura, the book outlines these 10 steps, and as we've said, they're not just related to climate crisis, but to other difficulties that we may be facing both personally and globally as a, a human race. One of the first steps you recommend is to reconnect with our uncomfortable feelings. In other words, it struck me to develop emotional intelligence. You say there are no negative feelings, just uncomfortable feelings. In our society, and often especially with men, 
and also with all humans, getting in touch with our feelings, especially uncomfortable ones, is not seen in a positive light. We avoid doing that because these feelings can be uncomfortable and even painful. Often with the loss of a loved one, society may expect us to just buck up and move on after only acknowledging that loss for a few weeks or a few months. You say that all feelings are teachers. So in your view, how does it help us to acknowledge our feelings, especially the uncomfortable ones? To be honest, this is a struggle for me. Feeling feelings has been a struggle for me because of my own healing journey. And so I I feel like when I get to learn things and discover things for myself, I can share them back into the collective. And when you experience a lot of grief or a lot of loss in your early life, like I did, I, I shut down, I shut them off. And that led to a series of years of my life feeling really empty and stuck in my own depression and anxiety. And then realized that that we have some choices about how we live our lives. And that's one strategy. And it's a strategy that worked really well when I didn't have other resources. But we've learned through theorists like Brene Brown that if we don't take the time to process and feel our heavy and painful feelings, that we actually mute the experiences that bring us alive and that we really want to feel like um, love and excitement and pleasure and passion and wonder. And so I started realizing that that my survival technique was no longer serving me. And I can extrapolate that to the larger culture that is really phobic of fears or phobic of feelings like grief and fear and rage. And so we try to silence them. We try to push them away. I I think you use the word like buck up after a loss, like just move on. You're okay. But there's actually a lot of wisdom in our feelings. There's a lot of wisdom in these ones that we don't want to feel And theorists like Francis Weller argue that if we're actually able to sit with these heavy and painful feelings that that there's a maturity that comes with it. And there's like, I'm not surprised that this dominant culture lacks a lot of elders, a lot of wise elders that can sit with pain and be with our pain and guide us in healthy ways. Um, And it's because we have this absolute resistance to feeling particularly the the feelings that are difficult and painful. And we also use the term or or we invite people to think of feelings as just additional data points. Like what is this feeling of hopelessness or despair trying to awaken in me? Um, Every feeling is kind of pointing to something that's happening and that we can address. And so instead of running from it or stuffing it or avoiding it or, or whatever survival strategy might work for a little bit, this is an invitation to come back to it and to see what's present there and what it has to teach us and inform us about. Mm hmm. So you you mentioned this this idea of acknowledging all of our feelings as a key component to the first step that you mentioned, accepting the severity of the predicament. So would you say more about that? What do you mean by accepting the severity of the predicament and and why is that important? I mean, I have a sense <laughs> accepting the severity of the predicament and and again, you know, um I had had, and I know I, I had sent you a link to this one, the program with um, with Chris Johnstone on, you know, in the past about climate change, and um, it is overwhelming. It's really overwhelming to to really hear realistically about what the planet is going to be like in another um, twenty or thirty years, um, because 
it, it's overwhelming. And way, one way to cope with that is just business as usual, which is you know something that he talks about in his book, um, Active Hope. So would you say more about accepting the severity of the predicament and why that's important? Yeah, that book with Joanna Macy, Active Hope, is profound, and I highly recommend it. And Joanna Macy has been a teacher and an influence of this work as well. And so, but uh, I've also followed Chris Johnstone's work, and and yeah, it is difficult. And and I'd like to talk about that in a second. But I think until we're in a place of really acknowledging where we're at, and that the systems that we've designed, particularly in the dominant culture, are causing tremendous harm and are about to move us out of our habitable range for living. Um, it, I think it's really hard to move toward a direction of solution making if we can't even grapple with how big and how enormous these issues are. And so we start our program there. And and I I think it's a really hard invitation to start on. Um, and I think that until we can start to feel the enormity, the magnitude and have a place to, to get real about it, as Susie Moser says, we have to get real about what we're facing. Until we can do that, I think we're doing a disservice to our nervous systems and, and we're doing a disservice to the collective. And I use the term predicament uh, because a predicament does not have one solution. A predicament needs to be moved with and tangled with, danced with, lived with. Uh, and it's made up of a series of problems, but they're so interlocked in the, the complexity factor, the depth, the breadth, um, those are all intermingling and making this enormous issue that that uh, what we can do is our little part and cultivate these seeds to go back to that metaphor. But we can't just say, we'll remove all fossil fuels and we'll stop using them because then that creates a lot of different issues that we don't have solutions for. We can't say we're going to stop using single-use plastics because those have a lot of value. We started creating them for a reason. And yet, it's destroying our earth and my microplastics are in every aspect of our bodies as well as every ecosystem. And, and so the predicament points to the gridlock that we find ourselves in. And it's an invitation to start moving with it and start identifying our little piece of, of the puzzle or of the solution and move forward from there. Yeah, I actually really, really appreciate it. So I want to take a moment and just point to those words again. So you, you talk about a problem versus a predicament, you know, the problem being, you know, more um, amenable to, you know, say you can imagine a stepwise solution to a problem, but a predicament, as you've described it, is this interwoven, interweaving of multiple problems, kind of layered on each other kind of like a tapestry and then you also you know point to the difference between something that's complicated versus complex and i think and you may have quoted someone in the book but complicated you said it's kind of like having a car trip with you know young children that's complicated but you, you can make a plan but complex is more like the whole you know process of raising children and all of the issues that come up you know with that so did you have more to say about i just i just love those distinctions that you made in the book so i wanted to take a moment and point them out yeah, I used the distinctions from Vanessa Androietti, uh, who wrote um, Hospicing Modernity. And I, 
you know, I think a lot of people talk about the difference between a problem and a predicament, but those examples that you just highlighted that she put into hospicing modernity, I think really help us grasp the difference of, of what they are. And so I just want to extend uh, gratitude for her helping us parse out what these words mean and, and, and then the invitation to, to look at them and how we're going to move with them in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that you write about uh, later in the book is letting go of outcomes. Now, this is a real yoga principle. The teachings of Kriya Yoga, non-attachment to outcomes is one of the important practices for spiritual awakening. Spiritual awakening meaning the awareness of our connection with all of life and with um, the divine, with um, supreme consciousness, however you want to describe that, that enlivening power that runs the universe. If we're attached to certain, to a certain outcome, a particular outcome of our actions, we may miss the greater opportunity that we can't see with our limited human vision. It can also cause suffering when things don't turn out the way we think that they should. So from your perspective, you say more about that. Why is letting go of outcomes important? Yeah, you've done a great job of setting me up for this question because you already named that that when we get so fixed and so rigid on one outcome, it limits our vision. It limits our ability to see different things. Uh, and, and then of course, if that thing doesn't happen, then you're right. We suffer, we feel pain, we feel anguish, we feel maybe shut down by our options. And if we're able to actually be with uncertainty, if we're able to, to, let go of rigid expectations, we become a lot more nimble, we become a lot more flexible, and we become a lot more open to see things that we could not have imagined. And we're really inundated, we're really limited by our biases, by the stories we tell ourselves, by our own perceptions. And so, of course, we don't know everything that's going to happen. Of course, we only have a fraction of the story, and it doesn't serve us in a time of, of rupture and disruption and ongoing tumult to say, this is exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Instead, it makes more sense for us to to stay open, to look and to connect and to form a relationship with this uncertainty, with this change is coming, whether you like it or not, because if the world is constantly changing, we will change along with it. And then that produces a whole new line of situations uh, that then we can attend to and then we can respond to. I think what I'm pointing to is the invitation to responsiveness instead of reactivity. The rigidness of expected outcomes produces reactivity and the nimbleness of being with uncertainty allows us into a responsiveness. It allows us into some agency over what the future is going to hold. And since we don't know what the future is going to hold, it serves us best to be responsive instead of reactive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually love that, you know, love that distinction between, you know, being responsive, being able to have a little bit of, of um, a say in our, in our, um, in what we do in response to a stimulus versus being reactive, which is to me sounds just like a knee jerk, you know, it's just like you're triggered into whatever emotion is your, your go-to emotion, which for many people is anger. Um, and, you know, you're in anger before you know it. And then then that really closes off, you know, potential solutions if you're coming from a point of anger. Mm-hmm. So you, you do make um, a point 
<clears throat> to say that we need in this process to take breaks and rest. In fact, it's one of the steps you mentioned, step seven. Logically, we all know that's important, but especially if we come really, you know, dedicated to the work we do, we either can't take breaks, feel that we can't, or we just don't find the time to take breaks and rest, which is just a recipe for burnout. Now, being seen as a workaholic is admired in this society. Um, you point out that rest is a human right, but that many are not afforded that right because of their circumstances, they don't have a choice. And you gave many examples. So uh, people with low incomes, women who raise children and also work a full-time job outside the home, or those who are caregivers for elderly parents and, and many others may not have this opportunity to take breaks and rest. I can imagine that this is a really important part of building our resiliency. Would you say more about why rest, taking breaks and rest is important on this path to reconnection? So many of us don't know how to rest. Uh, it is not a skill that we learn very easily once we get out of kindergarten, I think, once once they put the cot away or the little, you know, nap square. And resting goes above and beyond um, just napping and just and just sleeping. Uh, but if we truly want to reconnect, if we truly want to move toward healing, it's a slow, intentional process. It requires presence. It requires space. And those types of things are just slower than the dominant culture allots for. And we need places where we can unplug, where we can reset our nervous system, where we can kind of um, throw our cares away for just a minute and come into the moment and just be with what restores us and what nourishes us. And so many of us don't have the time and can't do it. And, and actually in our 10 step program, we get a lot of pushback about this step because it's a step about justice. Who's allowed to take breaks? Who's allowed to rest in this culture? And I think that this is why we have to start noticing and we have to start looking for places that we can rest and we have to start actually doing it because the culture will never give us permission to rest. We will never be afforded time to rest when productivity is always the goal. And we're trying to reframe our balance of being and doing so that we can start that reconnection process or continue that reconnection process. It's also incredibly important to note that in this hyperproductive culture, so many of us have mental or physical health impacts from the speed at which we're living. If we're not allowed to rest, if we're not allowed to unplug, then we have heart disease, we have depression, we have cancers. And, and so even if we're not looking at how rest can be revolutionary, and um, Trisha Hersey has a great book about this and has a great movement called the NAP Ministry. Um, and just says like, lay your head down. Like, that's it, period. <laughs> we don't have to talk anymore. Just lay your head down first. <laughs> uh, but if we don't name that that rest is revolutionary, we can at least look at it from the physiological, biological, mental health aspect. And that's that we're killing ourselves with overwork, overconsumption, and just this frenzy pace of life that we are trying to fit ourselves into um, that, the dominant, that the dominant culture perpetuates. Mm. Yes, the focus, the focus on, you know, productivity, you know, above, above all else. Um, 
one of the other things that you talk about is meditation. In fact, you say that practicing meditation is one of the most radical self-care tools available to us. I love that statement. Practicing meditation is one of the most radical self-care tools available to us. Of course, here on the Yoga Hour, we talk a lot about meditation. Um, our most recent show was with our founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, and it was really about meditation. So if anybody missed that one, listeners, it was on the program last week, um, and you can access it through uh, the website or through your podcast archive. Um, obviously, there's been a lot that's been um, <clears throat> documented scientifically about the practice of meditation related to physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and healing. What is your experience of why having a meditation practice is important? I have historically had a love-hate relationship with meditation. It's been really hard for me to have a sustained practice of yeah. meditation. And yet I keep trying to do it because I know it is revolutionary, because I've seen benefits from it. And yet I continue to struggle with establishing that regular practice. And I think it's because I had to reframe what meditation meant to me and how I practice it. And we can talk about that in a second, but I from my experience, from my study, and from learning a lot of different modalities, I've learned that meditation is an invitation into presence. Mm -hmm. Meditation is an invitation to slow us down, to get us out of that frenzy state, that frenzy space that so many of us are in chronically. And it allows us to open to nuance and novel perspectives just by slowing down, just by bringing us into the present moment. And of course, I, I think you even named this in the question, but it has a whole slew of health benefits you know like it helps our heart rate it helps our blood pressure it helps our mental health conditions oftentimes and what is phenomenal is when you look at the neuroscience of it or, or you look at the brain studies meditation actually like they take brain scans of somebody who's been practicing meditation for 20 or 30 or 50 years versus somebody who has not and the the experienced meditators brain has changed shape like right. there are different synapses happening in the in the brain of an advanced meditator that point to more connection and point to more compassion. And so if we're trying to create these conditions for a mutualistic, for a, a, a connective, for a loving world, we can probably start with meditating and enhancing those aspects of our brain. Mm -hmm. Well, this you know points to you know one of the steps, which is do inner work, do inner work, and I thought that was really interesting that you included that as one of the steps because um, sometimes um, there's this feeling that there's so much work to do in the outer world. How can we possibly take that time to do inner work? And yet you point in the book to how developing or um, uh, expanding our consciousness is one of the most important things that we can do. So would you say more about that, about that kind of, you know, um, the importance of inner work as you look at the, you know, um, this balance of the outer work you know, that needs to be done, that we could work, you know, day in and day out on the outer work um, and, and not, you know, take any time uh, for inner work. And yet your book points to that that's not the right approach. The inner work deeply informs any of the outer work that we're going to be doing. And what I found personally is that 
it's almost as if we're projecting our inner worlds onto the outer worlds. And if we're living in this fast-paced, alienating, isolating society, then of course all of our actions are therefore going to project that. They're going to be full of alienation, competition, isolation. Uh, there is a really great quote that we include in the book by Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, and they say, without inner change, there can be no outer change. Right. Without collective change, no change matters. Mm. And so, like, instead of saying outer work is more important than inner work or inner work is more important than outer work, it really is the balance and the blend of both of them. We do the inner work so it informs the outer work and we do the outer work so we can have collective change and build better worlds. It's both and and they're, they're reinforcing each other and always working with each other. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, that that is really great, and I think um, it certainly um, has been my experience that the inner work is 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 super important. I, I like how you point to if we don't do the inner work, then the outer work that we do, um, or maybe it's say it in a different way, the inner work and the the perspective that we develop by doing inner work can then change the type of outer work <laughs> that becomes possible for us to do in a very potentially revolutionary way. Yeah, yeah. well, and I wouldn't even say potentially revolutionary. I think this is where the revolution is, is mm -hmm. if we're always on the front lines of protests and we're always angry, we're always grief stricken, we're always full of despair or frenzy, what kind of actions are we then promoting? What are we saying yes to when we otherwise know that we should have said no to if we would have checked in with our bodies and been present for what we actually want and need for our future worlds? I think I think this frenzied state really limits our capacity to show up in the world. So the call for inner work, the call for trauma healing is again an invitation into responsiveness, into our own personal agency and in, in, in being able to see things differently from the ways that that they're presented to us. If we're engulfed by grief, anger, anxiety, or just frenzy more generally, or overwhelm even more generally, uh, we're limited in the capacities to notice nuance. We're limited in our capacities to notice that things could be a different way. The inner revolution informs the outer revolution. Mm -hmm. oh, that's very well said. Yeah. Thank you. So the the 10th step, um, reinvest in meaningful um, efforts. Would you like to say just a couple of words about that? Um, we just have a, you know, a few more minutes. Uh, and I thought that kind of from, you know, the quick overview that you did of all of the steps, it's sort of a culmination, really, you know, of, of the program. So often, we want to rush to action. One, because the world needs to change and many of us can feel it. We sense that. And so, of course, it can't change without action. But to point to what we were just talking about a moment ago, if all of our actions are just rushing to squash a feeling that we don't want to sit with, then they're actually not wise actions. And the 10th step, we have to go through nine other steps before we get to the meaningful action, before we have done enough inner work and enough capacity building to be able to see ways to expand and to reframe meaningful action. And we have like kind of a secret sauce for meaningful action. It's where your experience and your skills uh, meet your passions. And so those are your superpowers. And then you can employ your superpowers in service to growth, connection, and healing. And that's kind of your work, like what you're going to do. 
And we think it's so important to take back our agency and expand meaningful action to things that many of us just gloss over as meaningful action. So slowing down and being absolutely present with your loved one is a meaningful action. Sharing Mm -hmm. your surplus vegetables from your garden with a neighbor is a meaningful action. It's a meaningful action to offer to watch your neighbor's kids so they can go to a protest or to a direct action movement. You know, it's meaningful action to apologize and to engage in um, conflict repair or wound repair or healing. Uh, And so we're really trying to figure out ways that we can form a a subtle revolution, you know, uh, oftentimes by the media um, or in interviews, we're asked for things like, okay, people have sat with you for 10 weeks. What are these grandiose things they're doing on the other side of 10 weeks? (laughs) That that sounds, that sounds so much like the dominant culture, right? What is your, what is your productivity going to look like coming out of these 10 weeks that you've invested (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Thank you for naming that. Because for me, I'm more interested in the subtle impacts that that people have learned. I'm interested in the fact that people ask different questions. I'm interested in the fact that people are willing to sit with and process their heavy and painful feelings instead of running from them. I'm interested in the new relationships or the, the attention to their already formed relationships that they're now giving back. Like, I think the revolution exists in those things and not necessarily like they're on the front lines for direct action. That is important. That's a holding action. Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone call that a holding action. And those actions stop the harm or prevent further harm. We absolutely need them. But while we're stopping and preventing further harm, we need to be nurturing those seeds and creating new systems and new paradigms and new ways of being. And I think that our program starts to let people glimpse into other ways of being. It helps us reconnect. It helps us feel like there's momentum in love. And and so often we forget that there is momentum in love and beauty and joy. Mm. Wow. Very well said. And here we are at the end of the conversation. We always like to give you a few moments in closing. What words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners? Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I think I think it's important, and this might this might not sound encouraging, but I promise it will get there. Uh, I think it's important to name that that living open heartedly, living in a connected way, requires courage because the world so often breaks our heart. And sometimes it's the easier option to stay numb. It's a, it's a survival technique. It makes sense why we have to stay numb, but we do have to come out of that, that numbness and to live fully. We have to be willing to feel our feelings. We have to attend to our inner worlds for all the reasons we've been talking about today. Uh, But we also have to reconnect to our bodies and, And it's so easy to come on here and and have this fun interview with you and talk about it in an abstract way. But I want to honor that doing it in practice is actually quite painful and hard, like to be willing to go through the depths of our grief, to be willing to meet our fear face to face and not run away from it requires some stay power. It requires some building of distress tolerance. And that is hard work and it, it deserves honor it deserves um our our hearts and it deserves a tremendous amount of respect and and so my invitation to folks who are listening to this is to try to embrace more of the paradox more of the questions more of the both and living as we start to embody these times because it is hard and it requires 
the supportive community, that's also important, is we can't do this work alone. But I think what we can start doing alone in our everyday lives is is starting to work with more patience, more noticing, and, and more pausing. And I think, again, that this is where the real revolution starts, is in those actions and bringing it out collectively. So uh, I think that's that's what I'd like to leave folks with. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today is Laura Schmidt. Laura is the co-founder of the Good Grief Network and the co-author of the book we've been discussing today, How to Live in a Chaotic Climate, 10 Steps to Reconnect with Ourselves, Our Communities, and Our Planet. You can find out more about the work of the Good Grief Network at their website, goodgriefnetwork.com. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me today on the Yoga Hour. Thank you, Laurel. It's been a delight. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. CSE offers daily meditation online in the morning at 6.30 a.m., in the afternoon at 4, and on Monday evenings at 7.30. All those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers that happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. Another podcast that might be of interest to listeners of the Yoga Hour is the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien that includes presentations from classes and talks she has given. You can find that podcast through the CSE website, csecenter.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, Kriya Yoga Today. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will welcome back Michelle Cassandra Johnson. We will be discussing how we can heal and find joy in times of isolation, grief, sadness, and fear. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leitinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Mm-hmm.